Hey everyone, this is Siobhan and you are listening to the Creative Outsiders Podcast where we connect the dots for women's storytellers. Basically, we want to let you know it's possible to live your filmmaking dreams. And today, I get to sit down and chat with Paulina. As much as I could so quickly and accomplishing so much so quickly. Mm-hmm. And I skipped over a lot of thinking of the long game. And at the end of the day, this is an industry about relationships, truly. I mean, the art is what keeps you there, but the relationships are what get your foot in the door. Mm-hmm. So welcome, Paulina, to the show. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Yes, I'm happy to have you. When I was doing my final touches of research today, I was like, this is going to be such a good conversation. Oh, good. (laughs) It always is. (laughs) It is. So I wanted to ask you, why filmmaking? What was the moment that defined you being a professional storyteller? Uh, that's actually a really awesome question because um, I came from a dance background, you know, competitive dancer growing up. I choreographed and then I had a really terrible foot injury right when I was about to go to colleges. And so it ended up actually messing with a lot of my plans. And I went, I got into Chapman University, which is one of the best schools for film. I didn't go in with the film program. I went in for theater, but just because I knew that from the dance world, it was an easy transition. But it was actually when I graduated Chapman, having worked on some of the film sets there, and I graduated and I met my now fiance um, on a film set. And he's the one that really inspired me to get into filmmaking. He's like, you, you know, he essentially said you embody a lot of the qualities of a director, of a producer. I think you, you know, maybe you should, you have these ideas. Let's try making some of them. And we started with very small projects. And from there, it expanded. I've always written for myself, um, but I had never written, you know, a screenplay before. And so I, you know, from there started writing small little shorts and small little projects and it just naturally grew from there. I'm also a huge, like I do my due diligence on people too. And I'm like a huge nerd about this stuff. And when I got into filmmaking, I fell in love with it and I just wanted to soak in everything I could. Um, and so I went to so many conferences and workshops and read everything and, you know, watched interviews and I just did as much as I can to learn as much as I can. And uh, so from there, I just went on to writing and producing and then eventually I transitioned into narrative directing. That was like, I always thought I would do that later on. I was like, oh, I can't do it now. And then it just kind of, um, yeah, just naturally that transition happened. And now looking back at my life, I'm like, it actually makes so much sense why I got into filmmaking from dance because that's storytelling with your body and you're not using words. And some of the best films, the ones I love the most are the ones that use less, they show, they don't tell, they, they tell, they tell the story and draw on the audience with how they craft the film and not always just with the dialogue. That's so funny that you said that my professor, because I uh, got my MFA in screenwriting he used to tell me that all the time. Show don't tell. Yep. Because it's I the best. yeah, because I started off as, as an author. Well, that's kind of what I did on the side. But I wrote books, and like you said, I always written for myself. So I was so wordy. <laughs> and I remember yeah. when he gave me back my first script, he was like, "This is great, but you're like doing way too much talking." <laughs> He's like, "This is a great book." <laughs> You're like, I know. <laughs> that's it, It's interesting because, yeah, that's totally the transition I had to make too because I was so used to writing, yeah, for myself. And oftentimes when you're writing narrative, you know, uh, 
author type works, you are writing the internal monologue. Mm -hmm. You know, you're writing so much of the exposition and so much of like what every character is feeling. But when you get into a screenplay, you have to be very cognizant of everyone's job that brings this to life. And you have to make sure you're not stepping on anyone's creative toes and saying, hey, I'm just going to tell everyone what to do. I'm going to tell you the lighting. I'm going to tell you the camera movement. I'm going to tell you how the actor should feel and how the direction should be all in this script. You know, you kind of have to really just tell the message and tell the, the, the blueprint. And then everyone else, my favorite part of filmmaking is that people who are so much more talented than me get to come in and really add their own stories and their own colors to this script and to this story and bring it to life. That's a very good point, what you said. I like how you uh, said that because it is a big transition, but you don't want to do everybody else's job for them. So I think that's a very good point for people who are considering it or even newbie filmmakers that just hone on on like the part you're supposed to do. Cause it is like a team effort all the way. It is. I would love to take credit for that, but I have to give credit to my fiance who is a DP. <laughs> he would always tell me his frustrations with certain scripts that he would get. And he would blatantly point out parts in the script where he'd be like, yeah, see, they say pan, right. But I may not want to pan there. He's like, that may not be a pan. He's like, stop telling me what to do in the scripts. And, I, and we would go through them and I would hear from his point of view, you know, because people forget too, like DPs, they're directing the photography. They're not just a cameraman, you right. know? So they have a lot of say in, you know, they're taking the mood and directing a lot of the lighting, obviously collaborating with the director as well. So that really opened my eyes to say, hey, yeah, I need to not tell the camera person what to do because that's their expertise. That's not my expertise. They may have a way better idea and they're just going to take that out anyway. Absolutely. That's really good. Well, kudos. Cause I know fiance, you'll listen to this later, <laughs> but yes, thank you, you for, <laughs> thank you for sharing that. You are over here saving lives and relationships between the director <laughs> and the DP. <laughs> yes, absolutely. For sure. <laughs> Boost that ego. Yes. Be <laughs> <laughs> so just to rewind a little bit, because I know when people say, especially for someone who's aspiring to be a filmmaker, even someone who's taken the initial first, let's say five steps to say, okay, you, um, you know, somebody saw something in you and gave you the nudge and then you started the process. And then now you have a narrative out, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes. But yeah. what was that in between like? Because yes, you went and you got as much information and you did the work, but then what steps did you have to take? What was every day like in that moment? Yeah, I, I love that you bring this up because this is so, everyone talks about the highlights mm -hmm. <laughs> and not the in-between. A lot of mistakes happen. Let me put it that way. Um it's frustrating. Listen, even today, you know, just like you said, I'm about to have a feature that comes out. And even today, it's a struggle. You know, that's the, that's the thing that I love about filmmaking, but really it's anything. When you have a passion, right, that's your purpose to wake up every day. And for me, it was a matter of, okay, whether I'm creating my own opportunities, as in creating my own work, whether it be getting money that I have and putting it together and creating my own shorts or my own spec commercials. I really recommend people doing specs. Mm -hmm. um, it's also 
if I don't have the funds to do that right now, it's reaching out to production companies or producers that are better than me and that are in a bigger, you know, realm that I want to be in and picking their brains or better yet, do the stuff for them that they don't want to do. Like for Mm -hmm. instance, a lot of producers get a lot of scripts and a lot of producers hate reading scripts, (laughs) you know, right. Read their scripts for them, do it for free. You know, they're going to, you now have a relationship with them where you, they can kind of owe you a favor or you're now building up a creative relationship where you're all, you're scratching their back and they're like, wow, this person's got some initiative. Take people out to coffee, just pick their brain and really have the long game in mind. That was something that I wish I'd, I'd done better. I got better at it later on, but when I was starting out, I was so focused on learning as much as I could so quickly and accomplishing so much so quickly mm-hmm. that I skipped over a lot of thinking of the long game. And at the end of the day, this is an industry about relationships truly. I mean, the art is what keeps you there, but the relationships are what get your foot in the door. Mm-hmm. And if you, I, I wish I would have spent more time nurturing certain relationships or at least establishing them because that would have, you know, that that's always going to get you further places. Right. Right. But for my day to day, a lot of it was writing a lot, writing a lot of my own shorts and finding a way to make them. I also would reach out to smaller companies. Uh, We also uh, did some work for a few hotels up in Napa Valley where we would do their like commercial work or their branded work or online video work. I did a lot of that, um, which was great. That was actually my gateway into directing because I couldn't afford to bring on a director. So I was like, I'm going to, but it was perfect because I had to learn how to direct one, seeing a space for the first time the day before you're set to shoot. Wow. In, in, a, in a remote location, meaning I don't have a rental house down the street, right? Mm-hmm. Two, I had to learn how to work with non-actors because o- often we're working with the staff doing either interviews or doing like kind of in the life of or in the day of, right? Mm-hmm. And also, I had to work with, a, with, along with all those limitations, making my day and getting everything knowing I can't come back, right? Mm-hmm. So- those are big things that people often skip over when it comes to directing. It's all about, you know, getting the shot and like you want to craft it perfectly. But night when you get into professional directing, so much of it is, can you make your days? Can you stay on budget? And can you still tell the story with those limitations? Right. Mm-hmm. And that was really a great, as, as small as these projects were, they were a great learning experience as a director, but they also helped me, um, get a little bit of money, get some clients under my belt, you know, learn about different things that I wanted to do. I realized I don't love producing commercial work. I really like directing it. So it was a lot of figuring out what could be my niche, what could be my bread and butter. Um, And that's evolved as I've evolved because really I have not been doing this a very long time from when I left college to now. But so much has happened in that, in that time frame. I feel like I've lived so many lives at this point. But uh, as to, from like an educational point of view, as like advice to give from someone who wish they could go back and like, you know, do it the proper way is be strategic in working backwards. Think about what you want to be doing in the next three years, where you see yourself directing or where, what you want to be directing mm-hmm. and work backwards from there. Okay. Who are those people to get my foot in the door? Who are the people that get me in the foot of the door to them? It's like, sure, you're not going to get into the 
you know, meet the head of Paramount and be like, I'm going to knock on your door and, you know, I want to direct it, <laughs> you know, but there's a way to work 10 steps backwards from there, you know? Right. Um, and there's that, that's an important part that I think is often overlooked when talking about what filmmakers can do, because so much of it's just like, make your work and someone will see it. Mm -hmm. Post it online. And that's kind of like disempowering in a lot of ways because there's so much content online and you're like, you feel like it gets lost in festivals. So much of that comes down to programming and, you know, is your, a lot of times people don't know what festivals actually are right for their film. So they miss out on that side of, of capitalizing there. Um, so be strategic in, in that respect, work backwards, make your your, your work, make it for as cheap as possible. So don't make a feature for as cheap as possible. I'll tell you that right now, like, unless it absolutely fits, but like make little shorts, make spec commercials, find ways to, you know, practice your craft Uh, at the same time, also find ways to really craft your relationships. That is really good. (laughs) I'm over here nodding my head like, yes. Yeah. (laughs) Cause when you, when you like, and only again, it's like, I know this because I've messed up. I've made the mistakes. You know what I mean? And then just seeing how the other side just doesn't work. You know, it's it's all trial and error. It definitely is. So just to rewind two uh, quick things before we transition, for those who don't know, let them know what uh, creating a spec is. So creating a spec is creating a commercial or it's like a, um, I should say a, how would I put, how would I put it? I'm like creating a spec commercial. You can't use the word in the definition. That's silly. <laughs> um, so for instance, I can give a, for instance, and that might help me explain it a little bit better. For instance, if I really want to do a commercial for say Legos, I may contact Lego and say, Hey, I wrote this commercial. Um, what do you think of it? They may get back to you and say, oh, this is really cool. Go and make it and maybe we'll post it online. They probably won't pay you for it, but now you've got a Lego, a, a commercial posted on the Lego site. Right. Or what you can do, which is something I've done before too, is I create something for a company that they're a smaller company. Like my friend has these Naturally Clean Eats bars, which is a food bar. And I collaborated with her to create a commercial in the food and lifestyle realm. So I pay for the commercial. It, you know, looks good. You treat it like a little commercial. And then you use that as a proof of concept Mm -hmm. for further commercials. So you can then send that as a proof of concept to a company that does a lot of different lifestyle and food brand commercials. And you're like, look, I've done this before. It's hard for you to reach out to a car, like a production company that does car commercials. If you've never done a car commercial, people only want to hire the people who have done it before. So a way to do that is create it on a smaller scale, but look really, really good yourself, put your own money into it. And essentially it's just a proof of concept. You're creating for them a fake commercial that they can either buy and use, or they can just use and give you credit, or you just have it for yourself to send out to other similar companies and brands. Great. That was a great explanation. Thank you. (laughs) I found it as I was going. (laughs) And then, um, as you were going through your process and you learned your lessons, how did you initially, because I know you created your spec, but then a lot of things that I'm finding out as far as for women specifically, we have a 
difficult time of being able to know what to charge. So you were just getting started and you're doing this work. So how are you able to know what should I charge these people? Man, that's such a good question because I think it's like, yeah, I would always be the kind of person to undercut myself, (laughs) Um, which is terrible. And asking my dad for advice was really good with this. Okay. So here's how I'm going to break it down. Not every, so there's three things I need to get out of a project in order for it to be worth my time, right? Mm -hmm. I either have to get a really good relationship out of it. That's essentially I call Rolodex wealth, Mm -hmm. right? So something I can cash in as a favor or something later on. Two, I either have to be getting paid actual money and or three, I need to be able to get something that's good enough that I can then use for my reel that I don't have that then can help me get something else. So it has to be real worthy. Like, oh yeah, this is good. I'm going to put it on my reel. You know, someone's going to see it if I can, you know, send it out and they'll be like, wow, that great thing on your reel. And now it's all worth it. Now, as far as like what you should charge, it's definitely a case by case basis, right? Because, you know, what you're going to be charging L'Oreal versus what you're going to be charging the little tiny, you know, stay at home mom who makes makeup out of her bathroom, you know, Mm -hmm. very different. And that's where I say you got to get those two other elements come into play and you maybe get, you know, those come into play as far as payment as well. A way to think about it is this. I ask, or I, I will ask like other producers that are, you know, doing the big, big commercials or ones that are probably maybe even mid-range. Hey, h- how much were your budgets, right? Mm-hmm. Now, if you're producing or directing, it's usually a percentage, right, of that budget. It's a small percentage of that budget. It's not just a rate. There's a small percentage in there. So if you scale that or take that ratio down to a smaller budget, right, mm-hmm. it has to be enough to get you excited. Now, granted, if it's enough, to, if you're saying like, oh, I'm going to take a few thousand dollars out of this little budget and you don't have enough money to actually make it look good, now you have to scale it back. So there's a ratio there. But at the end of the day, I find if you feel like you possibly could be undercutting yourself, ask the other producers, male specifically, ask them how much they charge and how much they take, right? Mm-hmm. Because then you're going to be able to say, okay, I go with to this client, say, you know, say it's a $20,000 budget. You're going to be like, okay, I take like say 3,000 out of that, right? Or Mm -hmm. 4,000 out of that to the line producer, you say, or the producer. And they're like, oh, I don't know. That's kind of steep, right? Mm -hmm. Don't automatically say 3,500, right? They'll tell you what they can do. I think as women, we're so quick to please that sometimes if someone says, oh, that's a little high, we're like, okay, no, no worries. We'll fix that for you. Mm -hmm. Instead of saying, don't say anything let them take you down. Right. My fiance, again, he's really good at this, at starting higher and then letting the negotiation happen by letting the other person suggest a number. That makes a lot of sense. That way you don't have to worry about actually knowing the right number. Don't be afraid to kind of overthrow it a little bit, make you a little bit uncomfortable. If they're like, that's way too high, just say, Mm -hmm. okay, what number makes you feel uncomfortable? If it's way too low, then you throw one back at them, you know? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So it's kind of a long-winded way of explaining it. No, that was really good. No, it was good because it, it gives a good picture, you know, like the big picture, but then even allowing people to be able to give you a number and then you negotiate whichever other way you need to. Exactly. I, yes, I think that's good. 
But I have been waiting because I want to talk about your narrative. Um, for one, because when you emailed me, I was just like, I have to know all, like, I, I have so many questions. Oh, good, because I have so many, <laughs> so many things to say. <laughs> because for those who don't know, you said that you shot your narrative film, which is a family film, in 17 days. Yep. In the middle of Kentucky. Yep. Wow, you shot 13 scenes in eight hours. Yep, because I had a kid. Yes, with a 12-year-old. Mm-hmm. Wow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so tell everyone first uh, who doesn't know, what is Mail Order Monster all about? Yes. So Mail Order Monster is a blended family, step-parent positive, uh, female-driven film. I always like to describe it as the female live-action version of The Iron Giant. Um, and essentially, this young girl whose uh, mother passed away three years ago um, is getting a stepmom. And she has a comic book that on the back, because vintage comic books used to have this back in the day, where you could actually cut out the ads. They had ads on the back and you'd yeah. send it in and you would get your like, build your own monster, you know, or build your own life-size superhero. And, you know, just because it's family films do this. And I love classic family films with a little bit of the, the stars aligning and a little bit of magic and like, you know, a stormy night, all the things, this monster ends up coming to life. Um, and the reason this monster comes to life and is called mom is because mail order monster spells out mom. And I was like, there's something here. I had initially bought this script. Um, and it wasn't the script. It was just the title and a, a different story, a young boy whose parents separate and they get back together at the end um, from a different writer when I was actually set to line produce this movie under a different director producer, then that funding fell through and I ended up buying the script and I ended up completely rewriting it and making it a story that I could relate to. Cause I have a stepmom, um, and I come from a blended family and, you know, I always grew up as never being like a girly girl. And I wanted this young girl to really represent the, the someone who's a little different, you know, she's a little bit of a nerd. She's into tech stuff. She's very smart. She likes to build things. Um, and she's into comic books. So it's this girl going on a journey to essentially get over her grief and also learning how to navigate this massive change happening in her life with the help of this robot-like monster that she has built. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I even love the reference point of the comic book and on the back because I remember that. Even yeah. though I wasn't super into comics when I was young, mm -hmm. I still remember that. Absolutely. And what's interesting, too, that we did – um, we ended up actually doing this because it was, it was written in the script, but we ended up incorporating it more because of some of the limitations that we had shooting it. Cause it's very much an indie was that anytime the girl is flashing back to her mom or any of the thoughts in her head, those are actually hand-drawn comic animations. Oh, wow. So the movie is actually live action, but partially comic book animation too, that, um, the drawings were done by the storyboard artist of Kick-Ass. So he's awesome and he gets hired. He's based out of the London and he's a really, really great guy. Um, so that was a really fun element as well to have involved for people that are really into the comic world and that sci-fi and, you know, just this fun, fun animated kids movies as well. Get to get to enjoy it. Okay. So your script is done. What's next? What is your next step of a filmmaker? So, when I, so again, this moved really fast. Like I bought the script 
October 2016. Mm-hmm. I finished my first draft by December 2016. Oh, you were rolling. <laughs> In that time, though, oh, yeah. I went to – this is what something I truly recommend for people that want to do features or their first indie feature. I went to AFM in November with a log line and an idea with what I was going to do with the script. And I went around and I had meetings and I went around to different people, not for them to say, we're going to fund it or we're going to take it on because I knew the reality that wasn't the case, mm-hmm. but just to hear their opinions, you know, how they felt about certain premises and storylines because the family market had a very ABC way of doing things, very cookie cutter, mm-hmm. um, which I liked the family movies of the 80s and 90s, which we'd kind of gone away from that in the modern day in the family market. It become very vanilla, very G-rated, you know, and it's very much like a dog and his friend, you know, mm-hmm. um, or a boy and his dog. So I was like, try, and not a lot of them were female driven where the girl wasn't some lollipop girl, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I went around to different uh, distributors and sales agents and I shopped around different log lines. And then finally I was able to kind of land on one that stuck where people were a little bit more interested. And then, you know, finished my first draft in December, continue to write drafts. I, during that time, reached out to Stacy Parks of Film Specific. Do you know who that is? No, I don't. Film Specific's really great. Um, it's an online forum and group and Stacy Parks used to have a podcast. She hasn't done it in a long time because she's just so busy. She was in sales and distribution for like 13 years. And then she got into teaching and producing and executive producing. And also she, for my film, she does what's called like production consulting. So she pay her a flat fee. She has no ownership over the film, no points, nothing. You pay her a fee and essentially she will take your, you from script stage through to sales and distribution and help you along the way. So she'll vet your cast, mm-hmm. help you like let you know who is, you know, bankable and who is really not worth the money that you're going to be paying for them because they're not going to give you the foreign sales, right? Okay. And then she helped me when my film was shot and we had the teaser for AFM the following year, she helped set up all my meetings. So all the sales agents I was meeting with were vetted, right? So I didn't have to worry about is this person a scam artist? You know what I mean? Because right. so many of them, it's hard. And this is where relationships are key. I was essentially paying someone for their relationships. And she was always there. She answered my emails without a doubt on time, like watched rough cuts and everything. So I hired her um, within about like March or April. We shot the movie in July of 2017. I, oh, and she also helps with funding too. So she'll help finance your film mm-hmm. if you her on as an executive producer. Um, so she does that for people as well. And she's working with people developing independent series as well. So that's a whole nother thing. But, um, so I shot the movie in July, 2017, had a teaser by November and had the movie completed and doing a cast and crew screening by December, 2017. We signed with our sales agent January and we screened in Berlin at the European film market in February. Wow. So it was really- Really fast, really fast. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. Yeah. And, uh, so, and then we come out before the end of the year this year. So my whole goal for the film was to prove that like, you know, I, I think a lot of the times the way, only because I people I know and sets that I've worked on, a lot of indie filmmakers approach their first film in a way that kind of sets them up for failure. You know, yes. indie filmmaking, it's very tough. You know it, like, 
it's not, but it doesn't always have to be as much of a money loss or a money dump or as much of a waste of time as people think. Um, there are ways to manage risk and there's ways to make it something that actually, one, you can make your money back and or two, actually be a career booster, which is that's the whole point of investing in something like this anyway. So I was all about that and packaging this film in a way where it simultaneously did both of these things. Um, and in, in order to do that, I knew I had to get this movie out of the, you know, in the can and out and released within a year of making it. And that's what's happening. So, cause it'll be released before the end of the year, which is a lot of fun. Um, I can't fully give like release details yet because like publicly, because my distributors want to do that um, soon, but it'll be happening in the next couple of weeks. We'll be able to, to say where it's going to be. Um, but yeah, so that was the speed part, not only when we were shooting it in 17 days and crazy amounts of scenes, in such a short amount of time, but just even the process of script to release has been very, very fast. I mean, that, like, if you could see my face right now, <laughs> I'm over here like, wow. I mean, but I like that you have pointed out that it doesn't have to be this, like, and not to say, because I am going to get to, like, the lessons you learn along the way, yeah. but it doesn't have to be this thing that doesn't help you as a filmmaker because yeah. I think that's a lot of the the disgruntledness that I hear from indie filmmakers it's like I'm doing and I'm doing but like I just don't see me making connections and not that I want people to be out here like being superficial like hey what can you do for me kind of thing exactly. but just not making genuine connections that are like pushing them to like you said like the big picture and I think that has a lot to do with what you said, like looking at your big picture and then walking backwards so that you can walk forwards, if that makes sense. <laughs> totally makes sense. And something you said there really stuck, stuck out to me, which is, you know, part of the mentality that I had to learn the hard way, which is sometimes when we make connections, we're so focused on what that person can do for mm -hmm. us instead of saying, hey, what can I do for them? And that person is going to notice that. That's just like what I was saying before. It's like, hey, read the scripts for the person that doesn't want us to read them, put in right. that grunt, you know, put in that grunt work a little bit and do them a favor because that's you being forward thinking and cashing in before you're asking. Right. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's, that's really good. I just want y'all to know who's getting ready to listen to this when you like listen back to it. I'm going to be taking notes on my own podcast because this is very good information. Oh, good. Out. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Siobhan. I appreciate that. You're welcome. So I do want to ask you because I know how it is. Like I recently worked um, as the uh, AD on my friend's project and we filmed over the weekend. And when I tell you like, it was hard. And, mm -hmm. I mean, hers was a short film and we like literally were the next, by the next day, like my whole body was sore. Yeah. So I, yes. <laughs> like that's what I try to tell people like you literally are working for people mm -hmm. who aren't filmmakers, but tell me what are things that you did learn that were like hard lessons during this process? Because this is your, first narrative feature and this is like so amazing that you're where you are right now so tell us like what are the things that you learned that weren't like wonderful tingly wonderful things <laughs> yeah oh my gosh um where do I begin first of all yes your body 
deteriorates when you're on set. I actually ended up fainting on set once from dehydration and heat stroke because we oh happened gosh. to be we happened to be in Kentucky during the hottest part of the year and I was not drinking water. So make sure you're drinking water because that way you don't get to the final scene and then again fiance has to step in and direct a scene. It was the scene we also had to cut up the most in post. I made sure to let him know. <laughs> I was like, "Damn, why?" But Big lessons. Okay. From a producing point of view, everyone will talk about, and I'll kind of work my way. Everyone will say, oh, tax incentives, tax incentives. I'm going to mm-hmm. tell you this right now. Tax incentives. <laughs> <laughs> I, but not all tax incentives are created equally. There are also tax benefits that come from a federal point of view and not just tax incentives that are state driven. So everyone talks about, oh, the check that I get in the mail is the filmmaker. Think about how can I protect my investors? And one of the best ways to protect your investors is shooting in a state that's going to get money in their account within the first year of them dishing out the investment. That's what happened with us. Kentucky was great because they do a refundable tax tax credit or tax incentive. So that means you get a check from the state. Whereas Atlanta, it's transferable, which means you actually are getting a credit, a 30% credit that then you have to sell to an Atlanta or Georgia based LLC. Right. So that's the difference. New York is the same as Kentucky. New York is great. Theirs is refundable as well, except it takes a lot longer to get it back because New York is such a big state. Kentucky, it's uh, less of a film industry there. So it was a lot quicker to get it back. I highly recommend that. Um, Also look into having your investors be active investors versus passive and doing, um, you know, I'm not an accountant, so I don't try to pretend to be, but um, when you go, yeah, when you go into a lot of that research or even discussing this with an accountant um, about investors, active investors that are named in the LLC will always receive more of a tax benefit on their loss versus passive, meaning they'll be able to write off their loss as Mm -hmm. a business loss, not just an investment loss. So they'll actually be able to receive money back from the federal government. So that's always really um, attractive to investors because they, that then puts them in a position of like, oh, well, I don't even care if the movie makes money because I just had this great tax benefit that I got to write off. So that's something to remember on a producing point of view is how can I protect my investors the most to keep them happy so I can then do my art. You know what I mean? The worst thing is having, you know, you have to constantly, the the one thing I was not going to do was I was not going to go back and ask for more money. I was like, it's just not going to happen. You know? So sometimes people will undercut their budgets and ask for too little. And really they, the worst thing is to go back and say, Hey, I need more. Um, So really be cognizant of that. That's a lesson. Um, Hard things I learned when shooting in a, in a, in a place like uh, Kentucky or a state that has a little bit less of an infrastructure. Um, really be mindful of just that you don't go shooting somewhere that has too little of an infrastructure. So you have to weigh the pros and cons of, am I actually overspending because I have to bring so much in, Mm. you know, Mm -hmm. or is that actually worth the tax incentive or am I better off shooting somewhere a little bit more locally and saving money on local favors? Hmm. And so for us, it was very beneficial to shoot in Kentucky, but that was something that we did have to consider because it got pretty intense. Um, so that, that was definitely something I'd, I would say. And 
from a directing point of view, uh, don't produce, direct, and write all at the same time. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> um, this is something that I should have done better. If you're going to direct and produce, which I love to do, have another producer with you on set. Not a line producer. Line producers, you have them on set regardless. But have another producer that's just a producer on set that's just producing. When you are directing and producing, you cannot afford to be the bad guy. You just can't. Mm. And this really messed with me a bit on set, which was there were times I'd have to put on the, the producer hat in the middle of directing. And as a director, you need all the troops on your side to get your vision made. Um, and when you put that producer hat on and you kind of have to be a bit of a bad guy, that's going to turn some people off. Um, you know, granted you'd be professional and you, you know, don't be mean obviously, but right. that's just uncalled for. But there are times you're gonna have to tell people like, I'm sorry, I can't give you this extra bit of money that you think you are entitled to while you're also saying, can you, by the way, can you set up for the shot? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> um, like, cause they're just going to move a little slower. I don't know. I, you know, that's a whole nother tangent on, I don't think that's them not, that's them not playing the long game, you know, as far right, as right. creating the right, but that's neither here nor there. And that's their prerogative. But as a director producer, if you're gonna do that, have another producer on set with you so you can just focus on directing. And I didn't allow myself to do that as much. So that was a bit of a hindrance. When it comes to directing children, I got the best kids. And a lot of that comes down to the fact that I interviewed their parents during mm. callbacks. Mm. Yeah. Interview those parents because, you know, when a kid is 12, 13, you know, around that age, younger, or even anytime like around high school, they're very much like their parents. They're going to be a product of either being just like their parents or trying to be the exact opposite, opposite of their parents. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so it's going to be a matter you seeing that other extreme or the people that they're coming from, like, you'll be able to gauge whether this is someone, especially if you're going to a remote location and you're bringing the family and the kid and it's a SAG production, like that's going to be something that you want to make sure is they're on your side, essentially. Right. You know what I mean? The worst is if you have no money in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of summer, and then you got a parent breathing down your neck telling you all kinds of stuff. I had the best set parents. Oh my God. They were like set mom. They were always bringing people snacks and water. We're like, no, relax, <laughs> down. And they were like, no, 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 we love this. It's awesome. So that was a really big thing. Oh, this is a biggie. Really trust. And this, this is a hard thing. I think one is a female and two is a first time female um, feature director. Trust your gut. Mm. We don't trust our guts sometimes, um, especially when we're dealing with people that are quote unquote older and more experienced right? and they're a crew member or they're, uh, you know, a department head of something and you expect something and they don't deliver or you expect something and they're like combating you. Mm -hmm. If you get a bad feeling about someone, you don't even have to have a just justifiable reason. Don't bring them on your set mm -hmm. because that was a thing that cost me big time. Anyone that I had a gut feeling about that was just, I don't know how I feel about this person, but X, Y, and Z reason we need to have them on ended up biting me multiple times later. And I was like, you know, I just didn't trust my gut because I was just, again, I was thinking short-term and not long-term. I was thinking short-term, well, they gave us deals on X, Y, and Z, right? Mm -hmm. Penny pinching, you're like, don't pinch pennies, what was the thing? Don't pinch pennies to save, or don't pinch dollars to save 
pennies or something like that. There's like a phrase. Right. I get what you're saying. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's essentially, I mean, was one of the biggest lessons I learned, which is like, you're, when you're on set, I mean, you know, this like, you're like a family for a short period of time, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's kind of like summer camp and people's emotions are heightened because you're working long days and you're physically working and you're mentally working. So people are going to have very strong, um, emotional ups and downs just because that's the nature of what it is. Right. The director have to be the rock one and two, you need to surround yourself with two other rocks. I was very lucky that my DP is my fiance and the best. We work great together. And two, my AD was also awesome. And my line producer was awesome. So we had a great, um, I had a great support system around me, but the people that I didn't have a good feeling about were the ones that ended up either causing us to not make our day on some day or cause us to like go over budget on something or, you know, became problems later on. And uh, that's sometimes hard for us to like accept because we think, oh, you know, we want to bring on all the most experienced yes. people and they have all these credits and tell you what right now, I don't, after this movie, I don't give a shit what your resume says, <laughs> to be honest. I don't, I don't care what your resume says. You bring, you know, if I'm interviewing you for like a production designer job or something and you bring a great lookbook and you bring a great uh, passion and drive and you have great people talk great about you, you have great references. And then when I meet you, you're also just a really kind and awesome person. And we gel on a creative level and also a personality level. I don't need to see your resume. Right. Because I hired the person that had, you know, the big resume and it, it ended up costing me. So is there anything that you would do differently uh, as this was, this was your first feature? Differently in what way? Uh, creatively, not necessarily your structure, but creatively. Oh, hmm. I feel really good about it. <laughs> That's good. Then. <laughs> I, I, I don't, and you know what? It's kind of hard to say because like, yes, at this point, you know, a year after the film, you know, having done other projects, there are always things I could say now. I'm like, oh man, creatively, I would have done things probably right. differently because I've grown as a person. But at the time, I'm I'm very proud of creatively of what we pulled off for sure. Um, and a big part, a testament to that was I knew that rewriting a script would cost me less than mm-hmm. reshooting scenes. Mm-hmm. And I nailed down that. I had everyone read that script. A big tip, you guys: get editors to read your scripts, not just writers, not mm. just directors. Get editors because editors are storytellers, and they're really good at cutting out fat. That is such a good suggestion. I've never heard anybody say that before. Oh, it! I remember I sat down with this editor. He's a great guy. He actually introduced me to the editor of my film, and he. Like his union directs all this or edits all this big stuff. And I remember he sat me down and he was so scared to tell me notes because he <laughs> my script. And I was like kissing his feet saying, no, 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 <laughs> you just saved me so much because I would have shot this script and then gotten in post and said, what am I going to do? So I was like, so thankful. And it really brought everything together. Always be open-minded with your script the script is the, the, the area where, yeah, it's so much cheaper for you to just go on final draft and do a rewrite than get into the edit bay and be like, crap, we have to do reshoots. You know, that's really costly. So that was something where um, 
I know that's more of a logistical thing, but creatively, I was very adamant about really nailing down the story. So I knew no matter what, if for some reason I just had brain farts all day, <laughs> if I shot the script, I at least shot something that I knew I was proud of. Right. Now, that's a very good, I like that tip. And wasn't your editor a lady? Yes, Miss Marissa Mueller. She's amazing. It wasn't actually like a conscious, it wasn't a thing where I straight from the get-go was like, I'm going to hire a female editor. Right. But because I was kind of just feeling out everyone and seeing, you know, who would be best for the job. And then when she was recommended to me, I was, you know, one, she was really great and we jived super well. And then I was like, you know what? I'm actually so happy you're a woman because you provided a really just provided a really nice touch to this type of film. You know, she provided a really nice perspective to this film because, you know, I'm a female director. Mm -hmm. My DP was male, you mm -hmm. know, or is male. He's not dead. He is male. <laughs> yeah. um, and so he, and then my production designer is male and um, my, but my gaffer was female. So I, I tried to have it to be really nice and balanced because even though, this is a female driven story. There's sometimes I, this film kind of needed a little bit of that masculine energy at times. Right. And at other times it needed less of the, that masculine um, point of view and needed that female point of view to more, what would be considered like masculine scenes, like a fight scene. Right. You know? uh, so that was, you know, and also just so fun to work with Marissa. She's a blast. Like if you ever needed a great editor, she's amazing. Um, love hiring women. So that you know, is a big thing. But that was something where now stepping away from my next film, you know, for those department heads, especially those other creative storytellers, like I never like to say, oh, make sure you, you know, hire just men or hire just women. But when you're interviewing everyone, you know, man, woman, whoever, think about how that brings a different perspective to that role and what kind of perspective are you looking for? Know that you noted like this was something totally opposite from what you were or where you thought that you would go as far as your first feature narrative yes very much so um really glad you brought that up um yeah like i never all my all my stuff before has always been a little bit darker um always having to do with like just you know the human psychology in a way just mm -hmm. you know, darker short filmy dramatic stuff. Um, but I'm so happy I did a family film because coming from that background, coming from that point of view allowed me to approach this genre in a completely different way. Um, it's kind of like when people say, oh, you know, if you want a really interesting horror film, don't hire a horror director. Have someone that like directs dramas or sometimes comedies mm -hmm. because they're going to provide that levity in those places where it needs that levity, you know, mm -hmm. that way you don't just have a one note film. And that was something that I was really adamant about when directing this family film, like family, obviously like no one gets super excited to be like, yeah, I'm going to make family films and they're <laughs> all the awards, you know, but then I think about movies like E.T. I think about yes. movies like Iron Giant. The Goonies, you know, or even Sandlot, just like classics, right? They and such good family movies. Such good family movies. They had so many colors. Like last night we watched E.T. and I was, we were saying like, it's actually quite 
scary in the beginning because the movie originally, like it's coming from a bunch of different scripts, some of them being horror films. And I think that's why they stick with us is because back in the day, those family films were very quote unquote, emotionally intelligent. Like they didn't mm-hmm. treat kids like, you know, spoon feeding them little stuff. And they made them films for really the entire family. Like no matter what age you were, parents, everyone could get something out of it. And that's really how I approach this film. I try not to approach it too much as like a family film. And I just try to approach it like a film from a kid's perspective, mm, yeah. you know? Um, and that made it a lot of fun. Of course, for this, it's like I chose a family film for this first film because the script happened to come across my desk that had a great title and the pe- some distribution I, people I'd spoken to were like, that's a pretty awesome title. And family films right now, you know, they do fairly well in the market. There's a nice there's a nice little niche there where you can do some good sales versus, you know, a a little drama, which is a little bit harder to sell. Um, And that was really important to me to explore that route as well. And so for me, it was just really about embracing the genre and taking my favorite aspects of darker filmmaking and then bringing that to this genre that typically doesn't see a lot of that anymore. That's interesting. So then where do you see yourself going as a filmmaker? Oh, that's a good question. Um, a couple different places. Well, currently, so Mail Order Monster actually ended up getting me a writing job um, for another family film. Yay. Yeah, it was really cool. Uh, this company that had looked at the film to possibly um, buy it and distribute it, which we ended up going to a different company. Um, they ended up calling me because they loved the story so much for a true story family film, um, which is really interesting because I'd never written anything like that before. But at the same time, I realized I love working with kids and I also do like, as for myself in life, I, I take Krav Maga, which is a form of martial arts, you know, Mm -hmm. self-defense. And I teach the women's self-defense course, uh, beginning of every month. And I've come across some really interesting stories, um, dark stories, obviously. Um, and I really am interested, I'm currently writing a script. I actually did a draft, but I'm completely (laughs) changing it and, uh, starting over, but uh, it's kind of like a very unconventional fight movie. I, I like to call it like if the eighth grade, if eighth grade met the wrestler. Mm. Yeah, a little bit. So it's a, uh, you know, darker thriller. Um, well, not really thriller, but darker fight movie, dramatic. I love that stuff. But at the same time, I've also made recently two shorts that are part of an anthology and they're like a minute 30 long, the shorts. Um, so right now it's like, man, cool. I just did a feature, but no one really cares. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm a filmmaker, no one cares. So it, it, for me, it was back, you know, back to the drawing board. Like, how can I grow? I'm still learning just like everyone else where my, like, you know, I haven't been put into a box yet. Like I haven't been right hired to, you know, only produce a certain amount of, or, you know, certain type of film or a certain type of short, certain type of commercial. So I'm actually in a very fortunate spot right now where I can continue to make whatever I want um, and just explore. So it's actually back to where it was even before the feature. And for the feature too, it's, you know, just because I shot it and it's done doesn't mean I'm done. I'm marketing it. You know, I have to think about where is it? We're actually going to the Portland Film Festival. We just found out the other day we got in, which is super cool. Yay. Yeah, I'm really excited because that comes uh, like a couple weeks before our release is when that's – going to be. And 
for me, it's just like, okay, cool. How do I capitalize on that? Now I have to, you know, add to that next stage of the feature film. Like when you're making an indie film nowadays, it's not just cool, write the script, direct it in post done. It's from development through marketing and release and capitalizing and building your audience and, and all of that. And at the same time, it's like, well, how do I capitalize this movie for me as a director? Who can I reach out to? How can I create something that's either within that genre or something else? Or do I want to work with kids? So honestly, it's just back to square one, which is the grind and the hustle. Absolutely. And do you think that is something that's difficult for filmmakers? Uh, Like you said, okay, I made a feature, like who cares? But how do you then like reconcile or even deal with those emotions or even like experiencing rejection? Like how have you been able to manage those types of feelings? Oh, that happens a lot. Um, you know what? I really try, I, I like to say a couple of years ago when it was really tough for me, I blame that those tough times on having an ego, Mm. meaning I deserve this. I'm entitled to this. And that never served me. And the minute I let that go and I was just, you know, thankful that I get to do this every day and realize, you know what, even if one day I win an Oscar or whatever, I still have to put in the work to do great the next year. Right. Make it about the journey. This is a time where you're building, 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 and you have to fall in love with it because life's too short. One, and two, it's not, it's not up to you when you make it. Right. Right. And you don't even know what making it is. It, all it is, just everything scales up, right? right? You still have to grind. You still have to hustle. You just have a different level of it. And you're, now you're in a different circle, right? It's never mm-hmm. just one day you've made it and then you're sitting there. You know, we all like to think that's what it is. But right. But you people at the top and they still have insecurities and struggles about everything. So you have to have no ego and that's a really tough thing. It takes a lot of soul searching. And I think if you really are in this for the love of the process and you focus on just being the best at what you do and being pushing and grinding and pushing yourself and you, and you fall in love with that growth, everything else will come. That's that's good. You just got to trust that. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. I tell myself this every day. (laughs) (laughs) That's sometimes what you have to do. You have to encourage yourself. So true. So true. And a community is important. Like I'm very lucky where, yeah, my fiance is a filmmaker too. So there are days where I'm down and he's lifting me up and there's days where he's down and I'm lifting him up. And, you know, we have a community of filmmakers where we all go through this and it's us giving each other pep talks and it's us rooting each other on and being there for each other when we have wins or someone needs a favor. So really, you don't have to go about it alone. Anyone who says they got to where they are all alone is lying. Right. It's just not true. There were people that helped them. There's someone that helped them through the door. So be that person for someone else and someone else will be that person for you. Don't always just focus on what you can take, but finding ways to give is really fulfilling and it's amazing what opportunities open when that happens. I totally agree. <laughs> so I'm glad. Our famous last two questions. Perfect. What are you watching right now and what are you reading right now? So watching 
besides the office reruns all the time. <laughs> um, just got into Man in the High Castle. I don't know how I feel about it yet. I'm a few episodes in, and I like – it's very um, – I love the way it looks. Like, it's a really nice look. I love period pieces, too, because mm-hmm. I feel like they're – you know, they just do really fun stuff as far as, like, cinematically they do a lot of fun stuff. But I still don't know how I feel about the story yet. I'm a big fan of The Sinner, and we recently just got through that, um, not the first season, not the second se- season. So we kind of take a break from all of that depression and then get into the office again to kind of recalibrate. <laughs> and now we're back into the drama. Um, but yeah, Man in the High Castle. And then as far as what I'm reading right now, um, speaking of ego, I'm rereading one of my favorite books, which is called Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday. This that is, is so funny. I started reading it, but I haven't finished it yet. Oh, it's great. I mean, I'm taking my time with it this time because I'm like taking notes. It's so funny. The first time I read it, I got Say Little, Do Much tattooed on my wrists because I, that was just a really grounding thing for me um, mm-hmm. because in this industry, there's a lot of talk. Yeah, because everyone's you know got insecurities and you hear hear all this stuff i'm doing this i'm doing that even on social media i'm doing this i'm doing that and that can get really discouraging so be the silent doer be the person that lets their work speak for themselves because that will be what makes the difference and it's just been a really grounding thing to me to always bring me back to like make it about the work make it about the work you know Mm -hmm. it's great you have to advertise your stuff and you have to put it out there but don't get um disillusioned by highlights and this ego is the enemy is i really needed it recently i'd read some pretty great books um before this and i then i was doing a ton of writing actually and i got away from reading and i was like i need a i need something that's grounding ego is the enemy highly recommend it he has his other book obstacle is the way which is also a really great book as well for people that need some uh reassuring force and reassuring words that when you're feeling like you're hitting a wall that always no always means next opportunity that's good so ryan holiday he has all the words he does he has all the words yes okay so let everyone know how they can stay connected with you how they can keep up with what you're doing absolutely so um you can find me on social media. I have uh, my company is jacks productions so at jacks productions or at paulina Lagudi or at Mail Order Monster. You'll find that always leads back to me somehow. <laughs> uh, go to mailordermonstermovie.com. Uh, we have a little newsletter sign up. We don't spam you at all, but just that'll give you um, sneak peeks and insights into the trailer and releases before we tell anyone else. It's kind of like our own little exclusive group. Um, so yeah, Mail Order Monster, Jax Productions, Paulina Lagudi. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. My personal account's not on Twitter anymore just because it came too much with all just tweeting and I don't really tweet that much anyway. I like pictures. Um, but Jack's productions has a Twitter and yeah, but Instagram and Facebook, you can find me, you, you can email me. I'm a big emailer. I just go to the Jack's productions website or the mail order monster movie website and shoot over an email and I'll answer any questions or just say hi and all that good stuff. Okay. So everyone make sure that you go and you connect and you support, you know, I'm all about supporting. And you know that you can find us at The Creative Outsiders. That is for our website as well as Instagram and Facebook. But y'all know I don't post that much on Facebook. Um, Also, you know, you can find me at Siobhan. What is my Instagram? 
Hmm. I think it's Siobhan <laughs> Adrian. <laughs> yes, it's Siobhan Adrian. But y'all know I post everything about like my family and my nephew and random stuff. But it's usually encouragement. And make sure that you subscribe uh, to the podcast, that you share it, and that you listen and apply it so you can go out there and live your dreams and not just talk about it. So until next time.